As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? (coughs) Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the work of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back, seeing. (coughs) The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes open? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know what opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had always, for the Jews already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, He is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that any, anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us, and they cast him out. Jesus answered that they had, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. So the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. Thank you. Thank you. You may be If you have been with us for a while through our series in the Gospel of John, reading this story of the blind man, um, in reading that, you probably began to connect a lot of dots to what Jesus is saying and what John is purposefully demonstrating for us by recording this in his Gospel. And uh, I trust that our time in John chapter 9 today is going to be beneficial for us, and I would just encourage you to spend a lot of time reading through this yourself and uh, making some of those connections and seeing what it is that God is, is seeking to reveal in this chapter based on the things that we've already looked at. Have you ever had the, um, 
the experience of happening on someone whose face has been disfigured in some way. That's happened to me in places like the airport, um, in remote places on missions trips. Um, it's happened to me at Safeway and um, even standing in the line at Starbucks. I remember being at the airport in Moscow a few years back and seeing a woman pass by me and when I first saw her, my mind was saying to itself, there is something out of place here. And then I realized her face was missing a nose. It's like, it's like my, my mind wasn't willing to register it because it was, it was just not normal. And yet, the more I thought about it, I realized, ah, she has no nose. And with, with these kind of encounters, we often respond or react by quickly looking away. <laughs> we don't want to be caught looking. We don't want to be caught staring at that person's disfigurement. We're, we're curious, but we're also a little broken in our heart about that person's condition. And Just kind of take that same scenario as if it were happening in your local Safeway. You're running into Safeway, you've got some things to get, you know, just some quick few items, some milk, some eggs, some fruit maybe, and you turn the corner and there he is, this man without a nose and missing part of his chin. And you quickly look away. <laughs> Your mind automatically is full of questions. You've forgotten about the, the milk. You've forgotten about the eggs. You've forgotten about anything else on your list. And your mind is just starting to process, what did I just see? What is going on here? You know what I'm talking about. So you push your shopping cart away as if, as if nothing happened. But as you push the cart down the aisle... There's something in you that starts to ask some questions, and you're curious, and so you actually turn around the aisle, and you go over, and you start looking at the Wheaties and the Cheerios, but you're really not looking at the Wheaties and the Cheerios. You're actually wanting to look at this person from a distance, and part of that is because of your curiosity. Part of that is, is just to satisfy and confirm that, that what you saw is really what you saw, and you're torn between compassion for that person and your shame because of how you have behaved having encountered that person. And when you look at them, although you see their disfigurement again, you also see the shame that is part of their persona. Because they are living under your gaze. And they're living under everyone else's gaze. You guys know what I'm talking about? There's almost like this, this body language that someone like that has that they know that people are watching and looking away and watching and looking away and watching and looking away and doing second takes and all that kind of stuff. And they know it and they feel it and they experience it and, and it's just an incredible circumstance for them that is hard for us to understand. And you realize that they walk everywhere knowing and feeling those same looks that you just gave, and they feel those thoughts that you're thinking because it is, it is what they've experienced repeated times over and over and over again. You ever experienced that? Ever had that happen? Now, if you happen upon someone who's blind, your reaction's not quite as bad, is it? Because you realize they can't see you. Or you're still curious, maybe, but you're not so concerned. You don't feel so much shame because you know they can't look back. So when we're talking about people who are blind, we are a little bit less concerned and our gaze lasts a little bit longer on them. Our text today reveals for us Jesus and John is catching Jesus looking at a blind man. Now, there's a lot of different looks that Jesus gives in the Gospels. It's an interesting study. How did he look at Peter? He saw Nathaniel. He sees this blind man. He sees different people. And, and, it, and here we have John capturing this moment, capturing this encounter. Notice verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And as we read those words, having gone through all this 
dialogue between Jesus and the, the Jews, in particular the leadership, the Pharisees, back to the Jews again, and, and just revealing himself uh, during this Feast of, of Tabernacles, we come now to this, this narrative picture story that we have about this blind man. And so we're, we're anticipating some incredible things that are going to happen, and John records now for us some of the things that are taking place. But Jesus here is caught looking at this blind man. Now get this, a blind man who has never seen a sunset, never seen the clouds form over the horizon of Jerusalem, who's never seen the many shades of green or the many shades of brown that are part of the landscape of Judea, who's never seen the faces of his parents or his friends or his neighbors who see him every day, and as Jesus is walking with his disciples around the corner, the gaze of the very Son of God lands on this man who is blind, and we're told he is blind from birth. Now the question I have is this, did Jesus see him from afar? Did he see him leaning up against the wall with a begging plate in front of him? Did Jesus simply notice him as he walked by and then about 10 seconds later the conversation starts? We're not told here. But we do know they're walking, they're, they're going somewhere, and while that is taking place, Jesus looks at this man and something is going to happen for us. What we're going to see here is that the light has come and this light that has come is shining in the darkness. And the light shines in the darkness. And in this encounter, we certainly will see that Jesus has this blind man as a perfect and wonderful example of how evidence leads to belief and ultimately leads to life. But as we scan this story, and there's a reason why we read the whole story today, because I wanted you at least to capture the, 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 the beginning and the end, it's important for us just to realize a couple of things. First of all, that this is recorded for us um, in such a way that it is chronologically significant. In other words, this is taking place in the sequence of events. This isn't a story that was just thrown in there haphazardly. There is, there is a chronological significance to why it is after chapter 8. Secondly, it is theologically significant. It carries over the themes of chapters 5, 7, 8, into chapter 9. It is practically significant because it reveals the depravity of the leaders of Israel in such a way that it prepares the reader for what's going to happen in chapter 10. And in chapter 10, Jesus identifies himself as the good shepherd. In contrast to the leaders of Israel who are recorded here by this analogy, by the story, as being blind. So let's step back a little bit and say more specifically this. Chapter 9 is a continuation of thought from chapter 8. In chapter 8, Jesus reveals himself as the light of the world. If you look at chapter 9 and verse 5, Jesus once again reveals himself as the light of the world. It is still the light of the world who is present, who is at work, who is interacting now with this blind man, who is the reason for this miracle, and who once again shows up at the end of chapter 9 interacting with this blind man, who ultimately bows down and worships. So the, this continuation of thought is present from chapter 8 all the, all the way along to chapter 9. The same light of the world, the one who has come to be the light in the midst of darkness. And remember, although the light is shining, not everyone likes the light, do they? Some people don't like the light because they, they love their darkness. They love their sin. In fact, they want to push out the light. They don't want to listen to the light. They don't want to have the light invade their darkness. They love their darkness. This continuing of thought takes place. Secondly, the theme of chapter 8 and 9 is found in chapter 9, verse 39. Notice what it says there. Jesus says, For judgment I came into the, this world that those who do not see may what? May see. And those who see, and you might even put in parentheses there, who think they see, 
who have all the, the data, have all the evidence, may become blind. Here's the theme. Here's the push. Here's the point. The light has come into the darkness. And the same subjects that are found in chapter 8 are found in chapter 9. The theme of darkness, the theme of blindness, the theme of sight, knowledge, they all continue. And there are some who see but are blind. There are some who don't see and will ultimately be blind. Sorry, there are don't see, they will actually see. Why? Because the light is shining in the darkness. It's a light that gives perspective. It's a light that gives understanding. It's a light that opens up the mind. It's a light that connects the God of heaven with people on the earth. All right, he is the bread of heaven come down. As that bread of heaven come down, he is the light of the world. He is the one who's connecting heaven with earth. He is the son of man who is that, that one that is in this mediatorial role. So we can summarize it all in this way. In chapter 8, the light is introduced, it's taught, it's explained. In chapter 9, the light is illustrated. And this illustration is a sign. And what is a sign? A sign is, might want to say, an earthly activity that has spiritual significance. So although what we have before us here is a physical healing that God does to this man who's born blind... It is also a picture for us of spiritual blindness and what happens when the light shines into spiritual blindness and there is a willing recipient who embraces that light, who goes after the light, who takes that light, what happens to him? And so there's a spiritual dynamic here that is being revealed through this miracle of Jesus healing this blind man. And notice at the end of this chapter, verse 38, we're told here that this man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. So we have this wonderful, wonderful picture that is illustrated for us. And I, listen, chapter eight was not easy stuff, right? We, we took our time, we worked through chapter eight, and there was this discourse that was going on. And so now John blesses us with this wonderful illustration to tie these themes together, to help us understand the kind of blindness that was present and the kind of ways in which the, the leadership of Israel was not willing to look, not willing to see, not willing to judge the evidence. And it's going to be revealed to us now in this narrative, not just in the first 12 verses, which are going to be our focus today, but in the last part of the chapter um, where there is a controversy. So today we're going to look at the actual miracle and the sign and next week we're gonna come back and we're gonna look at the controversy that the results because of that sign and just, just see how God fleshes these themes out for us today, all right? So let's just pause for a moment right now and let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask that he would give us insight and understanding during this time. Lord, I just ask for your help. I'm your messenger. Uh, Lord, I desire to do your will. You, you have been at work in my heart and I ask, Lord, that now what you have done, that your Holy Spirit, Lord, would work through, and Lord, that you would fashion and shape our hearts to be in conformity to your Son. You give us insight, you give us, Lord, um, a heart that is willing to, to be taught, and Lord, that you would strengthen us and enable us, Lord, to see the beauty of what it means to be one of your children. Lord, how you, the light, have shined your light into our lives, and Lord, the effect that it has had, as well as, Lord, just the, the reality that there are those who are remaining in blindness. And Lord, the tragedy of that, when the light is shining so brightly. So Lord, help us today, we ask in your name. Amen. The first thing I would like to say is this. I think this passage is teaching us, verses 1 through 5, the light presents the condition of this man. You might want to say the light reveals the condition of this man. Let's read those verses again. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So the question I, wanna, I want us to begin with is this. Who is this man? 
Jesus happens upon him. Again, we don't know exactly how, how it happened practically, but Jesus saw him, and then the disciples must have also seen him, and they say, okay, I have a question for you, Jesus. Rabbi, who sinned? Who sinned? Well, we have to ask ourselves first, though, who is this man? Number one, he's described by John as a man blind from birth. That's very, very significant for the analogy here. He's blind from birth. Now, this is a significant statement, and it's verified by the testimony of his parents. Look at verse 20. His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. Well, who would know best but the parents, right? So he's identified as one who's born blind, but he's also, the evidence there is verified by these parents. Now, it isn't that he became blind at some age, as a child or as a teenager. He has never, ever, ever seen with his eyes. He doesn't remember what seeing looks like because he never has seen. He doesn't know what seeing really is. So he's never seen the, the mist on a rainy, hot day. He's never seen the, the flight of an eagle or a sparrow across the sky. He's never seen the smiles of, who, of those who are his family or the expressions of a mother with a newborn child or the amazing complex shape of a spider web. He's never seen that. Oh, he's heard about it. He may have touched it and felt those things, but he's never seen it because he was born blind. It's very, very significant. Secondly, he is described by the neighbors as a beggar. The neighbors come and, yes, you know, later on, hey, isn't this the one who was the beggar? So he's both blind and he is known in his community as a beggar. Those are two descriptions in the economy and worldview of Judea that are destitute conditions. The culture of that day asks the question, and this is why the disciples asked the question. Is his blindness due to his own sin or is this blindness due to his parents? And both were considered to be reasons why this condition may be true. And the end result would be you look down on someone who is being judged by God or being plagued by God because of that sin. But then Jesus shows up on the scene. And he's described by Jesus, every time he interacts with Jesus, he's described as this man. That's why your heading says, the light presents the condition of this man. Not the blind man, not the blind beggar, but Jesus comes along and he doesn't even emphasize the fact that the man's blind. He doesn't emphasize the fact that he is a beggar. He sees him as a man. Yes, he's blind. Yes, he's a beggar. But he is a man in Christ's eyes. Now, we are taken back by some kind of disfiguration that someone may have or some blindness or some you know, ailment that someone has. And we might judge them. We might put them in a per certain perspective or, or, or have, a, have an understanding of them. But Jesus sees through all that and he still sees each individual as a person with dignity who's created in his image. And Jesus here sees a man. Now friends, it's worth us noting here that although we are plagued and deformed and in the bondage and blindness of sin, Jesus still looks at us as his creation. If you're a child of God today, he, is, he went to a cross, he died on that cross, he paid for your sin, you've embraced him as Lord and Savior, your sin has been cast as far as the east is from the west, you have been justified, you've been declared righteous, there will never, ever, ever be a sin that is brought against you to accuse you. Because it's all taken care of. And that is true then for a believer. And so a believer has the great privilege of knowing when I do sin, it's paid for. And when I do sin, it is forgiven. But when I do sin, he does require confession and restoration of relationship. But my eternal position and status before him is secure. So I may have sin throughout. 
You say, well, I'm not sure if I have any. Listen, I'll go home with you and I'll point it out. We all have it all over the place. But the beauty is, if we're a child of God, he looks at us through the lens of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sin, and he looks at us and he says, you are forgiven, you are cleansed. See, Jesus sees through those things that we have difficulty seeing, or with seeing. Now, having said all that, this is what this man looked like. The second question is, why is he blind? And this is, flows out of who he is. The question comes from the disciples, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? This is an example, friends, of popular theology that was debated in Judea among the Jews of that day. It's not any teaching that you'll find in the Old Testament, but it was a belief that was part of the religious culture of that day, as we talked about, that said, well, there has to be a reason for this person to be born in this way. There has to be a reason for the blindness. This has to be God's judgment on there in some way. So the question is, either this person was born blind, and their thinking was that somehow in the womb he committed a sin that resulted in his blindness. Or he is living with the consequences of the parent's sin that is now being I want to say, meted out on him. But there's no biblical precedent for that kind of thinking. Now, the biblical truth is that sin has consequences. Agree with that? I mean, you're going to see that throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament. It's all there. Jesus tells us in John 5.14, as he interacted with the paralytic whom he healed, if you remember that story, verse 14, afterward Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. We can go to all sorts of different examples to show that that is true. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 29 and 30, the apostle Paul is speaking to that church regarding the Lord's Supper and he says, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. In other words, there is a connection between their sin and their actual physical status. And sometimes, friends, you can't connect the dots between sin and consequence, right? We have to realize that that is true. We also need to realize, secondly, that, that when we sin, it does have rippling effects. Your sin does affect others. Now, you remember the story of of Achan, and the fact that he actually kept part of the spoils, which resulted in the armies of Israel being defeated and people dying as the result of his particular sin. And not only that, when it was exposed that he was the person, his family was affected by it, right? So that's not fair. But it's a warning to us that our sin does have rippling effects. Sin of Ananias and Sapphira. Were there consequences to them? They, they presented as if they were giving all of what they were supposed to give, but they actually withheld it. So it was the sin of, of lying. It was the sin of, of pride. It was the sin of, of withholding. These are all consequences that come because of someone's sin. So we know that sin does have its effect, and we must always be willing to ask the question, Lord, is any of my trouble the result of my sin? And if we can connect the dots, or if we really truly believe and see that, that my sin is fully or in part responsible, then we, we simply trust that God continues to be merciful, and he invites us to seek forgiveness once again and to rest in his mercy. So if you're a child of God, and you sin, and there is consequence that you're experiencing, and you can connect it to a sin, you simply go to God and say, God, I have sinned. This consequence has happened because of my sin. Lord, forgive me. Restore my relationship to you. Help me to, to not do this again. And guess what? He promises that he will, and he reminds you that you are one of his children. So we want to make sure that we understand that sin does have its effects, but Jesus comes on this scene and he tells us something different. Now the reality is, friends, that more often than not, we cannot connect our trial, our difficult circumstances to any particular sin. 
It's easy for people to blame their parents, isn't it? It's easy for people to say, well, society made me do it. I remember one time in Buffalo when I was there as a youth pastor, they were, they were interviewing some guy and um, he was arrested for carjacking and they asked him, well, why, why do you do this? He says, well, I had no choice. I lived in XYZ neighborhood. Huh? Living in a neighborhood left you with no choice? But that's what's pumped into people's heads. You're stuck because of the neighborhood you live in. No, that's not what God says. You are responsible for every decision you make. Now, other people may influence you. They might pump you with ideas, but you are responsible for your own sin. It's easy to blame some, uh, to blame, you know, some of your, your sin or your activity on some childhood experience. And I'm not saying that people don't have childhood experiences that are bad. But God promises forgiveness and restoration. He promises that, that in sometimes bad experiences, you might even be sinful. And how have you responded since that time? Have you been sinful in your thinking and your behavior and the things you want to do? There's all sorts of things that are there. This is all the result of sin, and it affects. It moves. I think of the story of Job. It's an example of popular theology run amok. The story of Job Job is held up by Satan as being God's favorite puppy, so to speak, right? Look at him. Look at all the things that he has. We're told there was no one as righteous as Job. And basically Satan says, you know what? The only reason he is worshiping you is because you have blessed him and your hand is on him. Take your hand off of him, he will curse you. So God says, all right, I'll do that. And we know the story to make it short here. He removes his hand, and he loses his health, he loses his wealth, he loses his family. I mean, he is not in a good way at all. And he has some, some faithful friends. When I say faithful friends, I mean, I, I, I really think that his friends genuinely were trying to sort through his struggle and to help him and to give him counsel. But the counsel they gave him was not I want to say counsel that would be from God. It was counsel that I would consider to be popular theology. And basically, here's what they said. Job, the fact that you are afflicted proves that you're a horrible sinner. In other words, these things are happening to you because you are a sinner. And God speaks up, and he says, no, Job, your affliction was to reveal my glory. Now, we have a hard time not connecting dots to things, right? You know, you lost a job. Why did you lose the job? Well, is it because I, you know, I didn't turn something in on time? Is it because I, you know, I filled some paperwork out wrong? Is it because I, you know, I had a Bible on my desk? Is it, you know, you could go through all sorts of different reasons and try and figure it out. It may be that the, the, the business is just downsizing and you know what, you happen to put a name on a list and they cross it out. But somehow we want to connect all these different dots. But it's not always possible to do that, is it? Now, I'm making a point here, ultimately, to go back to this statement that they make, which is what we call the fallacy of a false dilemma. They give two options, only two options. Either he was born blind or his parents sinned. In other words, they've boiled down a whole sort of options to two. But there's actually another option here. <laughs> and Jesus comes with that other option. Notice what it says in verse 3. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the work of God might be displayed in him. So there is no particular sin that is connected to this man's condition. The answer to the question that is that this man's blindness from birth has all been part of this divine plan for this particular very moment. I just this is amazing to me, that God in his sovereignty worked out for his own glory, for his own purposes, that this man would be blind from birth so that when Jesus comes around the corner, he could use him in an illustration to those who were his disciples, to those who may be watching and listening to those ultimately who will be reading the Gospel of John when it first went out, to understand what blindness and sight look like 
And then 2,000 years later, here we are studying this passage, and God continues to use this man's blindness for his own glory so that God might be displayed in him. Now the question is, what is Jesus doing by sharing the story? He is declaring that to his disciples and to us that God's work for Jesus while on the earth during his ministry was to be the light of the world. He came into the darkness to shine the light of the gospel. He came to bring good news to those who were blind Get this, who were blind from birth. You're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you are a sinner. You're blind. You enter this world, an enemy in darkness, wandering away from God. You're blind. But Jesus, through his gospel, brings the light. I don't think there's anyone in this room that can say, you know what, when I was born, boom, I popped out a believer. I was worshiping God right away. My cries were words of praise. I wish it were so, because it would be sweet. No, we understand the nature of man is such that he is born in sin. It's not talking about the actual, the actual you know, birth process. It's talking about this continual seed of sin that is, is, is what is behind continuing circumstance we find ourselves in. We are in sin, and therefore we continue to sin. And there's a need then for this blindness to be removed. So it is the light that reveals the condition of this man, and it's the light that has revealed to all of us here our condition. Secondly, the light provides the care, or the cure, I should say, for this man. For this man. So not only does the light reveal the condition of man, he's blind and in bondage from birth, spiritually speaking, he also provides the cure. Verse 6, having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeking. Now what strikes me first as I read through this passage is that there's no indication of any faith on the part of this man. Jesus just says, go do this. Now you might want to say the fact that he was obedient and did what he did was a demonstration of faith, absolutely. But the reality is only God can make beggars worshipers. It's only God that comes and takes someone who's blind and who's a beggar and it breathes life into them so that they come to a place where they're standing before God worshiping him. Now it's worth noticing, first of all, what Jesus chooses for us, what he chooses for us. Let's look at this man and see what God chooses for him. Jesus spits in the mud, he kneads it together, he anoints his eyes and tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. Aha! A new evangelistic strategy. Let's start now this new spitting ministry, right? Is that what we're, we're going to do? This is what Jesus did, and you know, what would Jesus do? This is what he did. Therefore, we're going to copy what Jesus did, and we're going to spit in mud, and we're going to go up to people, and we're going to anoint their eyes, and we're going to send them and say, go wash, and pow, they're going to get saved. Now, obviously, you know I'm being facetious, but I'm doing that for a point. This is a story, this is a narrative, and it is describing for us in an analogy format a real healing, but also with a spiritual emphasis and purpose. And we must be careful that we don't allow what is descriptive to be prescriptive. What is described is not necessarily how it is always going to be. So we take, the, we take the principle here and we seek to flesh it out, all right? What's going on here with this man is that Jesus, for this particular man, in this particular situation, is using a means to get him to the place of faith, to get him ultimately to the place of healing. God works through means. Now let me explain what means means, okay? If we, if we were to listen to all the different 
personal testimony stories in this room, we would find out there's a variety of different ways that God brought you on a journey to the cross. For some of you, you came to the cross in the context of a Christian home. And you, you bowed the knee before God at a young age. And that is a beautiful thing. There are others of you that also grew up in a Christian home, and it hasn't been until maybe you were a young adult that you finally said, you know what, I've, I've been fighting, I've been pushing aside, I've been doing all these things against God, and finally I am humbling myself before him and I'm embracing him as my Lord and Savior. That's me, that's, how, that's what happened to me. When I was 16, I was a rebellious kid, but God once again revealed himself, and finally I humbled myself before him. There are some, it takes years of God working in bits and pieces along their journey, and they're, they're, they're struggling with doubts and fears and questions and all sorts of things, and it just takes a long time for them to ultimately get to the cross. And there are some, it takes a month or, or two, and there are some that, boom, it's instantaneous. The point here is this, that God uses different means with different people. And we've gotta be careful that we're not always kinda of like cookie-cuttering the means. You know, you meet with twice and boom, they should be saved after that. Well, let's be patient. Let's allow the Holy Spirit to do his work. Here Jesus uses means ultimately that were for the purpose and the benefit of this blind man. Now, the question is, what does Jesus then expect of us? He says, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now, he's not making him jump through hoops, necessarily. He ultimately is calling on this man to trust him and to be obedient to his instructions. Now, in salvation, we do not bring anything to the table except our obedience, except our trust, except our longing for what he is giving us. So we don't work our way into salvation. We simply respond to this light that is shining, and, and it's not that the light is shining, it's like, oh, okay, now I can see. The light is shining, and the light bugs. We're like, oh, I want that, right? That's what, we're, we're attracted to the light. We want to go to the light. We respond. And a response of someone who is embracing the light is a response of trusting the light and, and being obedient to what that light has revealed. And that is exactly what we see here. Now, there's a subtle symbolism in what Jesus is asking this man to do. Let's go back to verse 4, where Jesus says, we must work the works of him who, uh, who sent me while it is day. There's a theme throughout John's gospel, in particular, 7, 8, and 9, at, where this theme is repeated. Let me just mention a few of them. I have been sent from the Father. I'm only doing what the Father has sent me to do. I'm only saying what the Father has sent me to say. The key word there is what? Sent. And Jesus now, in the context of this, I want to say, story, who has said to Jews and to the Pharisees over and over again, I am sent from the Father. I have been sent to say what he wants me to say. I have been sent to do what he has sent me to do. Is sending this man to the pool of Siloam, which means what? Sent. Now notice, it is John who supplies that information for us. And anytime the, the narrator, anytime the person who is, who is recording the story put something in parentheses, so to speak, and says, hey, by the way, this means this, you have to ask yourself, well, what's significant about that? Well, it's significant because he's connecting it to all these things that Jesus has been saying along the way. There is a theme going on here. He, the light of the world, the sent one, is shining the good news for the blind man from birth to listen to that will ultimately result in his healing and ultimately we see will result in his conversion and worship before the God of the universe. In the same way Jesus has been sent into the world to shine as the light of the world so that we who are blind might come to the knowledge of the truth believing that, God is, uh, that Jesus is God's promised Messiah and that through his shed blood we can be reconciled to God. So the light provides this cure for this man. It's a wonderful picture. We're going to see it fleshed out even more um, over, the, over next week. But let's move on to this third reality, this third way that the light enters into the story and enters into the darkness. 
we find first of all that the light shines and exposes man's condition. The light shines also and provides man's cure, but now we have the great privilege to see this radical change that comes as a result of the light. The light produces the change in this man. And I want you to notice this radical change as it's revealed through these three different responses from the neighbors and those who knew him before, we're told there in verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is not this the man who used to sit and beg? Some says, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. So there's three responses. Is not this the man that used to now, people that knew you, or people that know you, and maybe have known your past, do they say, isn't this the man, isn't this the woman that used to fill in the blank? Not that you want to fill in the blank, but you may have been known by all sorts of different things, but there is a change that has been taking place in your life, right? There's something different about who you are. And in this situation, it's pretty significant. What's the change? He was blind, and what? Now he can see. In this story, it's pretty radical, it's pretty out there, it's pretty, pretty clear for everyone to see. Another response is, yeah, this is the same man. There is a radical change that has taken place in this man. And many of those who know him or have watched his life see that change has taken place. But even with all that evidence, there are always those who have difficulty processing that evidence and believing that evidence. And so we do have one response here that is these, these people, neighbors and friends, who deny that this is he. They say, no, it's just, it's just someone who looks like him. Now, obviously, their assessment's gonna be cleared up real fast. But this is often the knee-jerk reaction to radical change. It isn't really what it looks like. This is, ah, they're just going through a season. Ah, it's just kind of a whim. It's just kind of a thing. And sometimes that is true. Parable of the Soils talks about that. People kind of have this you know, exciting experience with, with God, and they get religious, and blah, 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 blah. But the kind of change that we see here is blindness and sight. This is truly radical. But notice what this man says. He kept saying, I am the man. And what's interesting here in this story is that this is in a Greek tense that, that means this, that this man is saying, he kept saying continuously and repeatedly, I am the man. So as these neighbors are talking about, it's like, isn't this the person that, I am the man. Well, I think he is. Yeah, I am the man. No, I don't think it is he. No, it's me. I am that guy. I was the guy down there. Yeah, that's me. That's me. That's me. I mean, he's just repeating it and repeating it and repeating it. That's the picture here of what's going on. Listen, friends, personal testimony is an incredible, powerful demonstration of change that has taken place in the personal life of an individual. This is what has happened to me. This is how I have been changed. Now, he doesn't understand all of it, but he does understand enough of it. Now, at least the disciples, or the, not the disciples, but the, the rest of the people there, the neighbors, to ask a further question. How did this change take place? Notice verse 10. They said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus, made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. What is he saying? He's just telling a story. This is what happened. I met this man called Jesus. He put mud on my eyes, told me to go and wash, and I did. And now I can see. No frills. You know, no like story, well, I was born and, you know, and, no, just here's what happened. It's very simple. It's very plain. There's no frills. It's just simple evidence. In verse 12, then they said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. Now, you've got to think about what's going on here. 
This is a man who is blind from birth, who was approached by someone, apparently. He knew this man by the name of Jesus, who anointed his eyes, sent him off to the pool. He'd never seen Jesus before. If Jesus were standing in the crowd, from his perspective, he wouldn't be able to recognize who he is. He doesn't know. All he knows is that I was blind, but now I see. We read that a little later. Verse 25, I was blind, now I see. That's what he knows. Now, it's just a wonderful, wonderful picture. It's Jesus that is the light that has come, that is anointed, that is sent, and says, do this. And so when we, as those who listen to the light, listen to what he says and the evidence that is before us, and we do what he's calling us to do, radical change takes place. Now, radical change in this man was outward. It was seen. It was visible. But that isn't always how radical change fleshes out in the life of a believer. Now, certainly, we are regenerated. We are people who have had the good news radically come and affect our lives. We've, we've been born again, are expressions that are used here. We are new creatures created in Christ Jesus. But sometimes the effect of the gospel on the life of a believer, of a new believer, is very, very much on display. There's an enthusiasm to the things of God. There's this desire to, to read God's word. There's a desire to be with God's people. There's a desire to come and be a part of corporate worship. And there's a desire to, to actually say, well, how am I going to be obedient to this new master? There's definitely this, this, this public, visible kind of a thing going on. And, and I tell you what, it's exciting when we see that. But the, the same reality is that too often we are very attracted to that kind of powerful um, on display kind of conversion. And we gotta be careful there because again, the parable of the soils tells us there are some who make a response to God in such a way that it's just like, wow, this person's real, but then the cares of the world choke them out. And it's been, it's evident by what happens in their life that this was not really deep-rooted faith at all. There wasn't a true conversion that took place. I say all that to say this, for some, Although there is a radical internal change of heart, um, that expression um, of that change is somewhat subdued. They're not just bouncing around wearing new, you know, I love Jesus t-shirts. They're people who have come into this new walk with God who are radically changed, but they're slowly and steadily growing in their faith, and they have questions, and, and it's not always necessarily on display, and they're kind of you know, a little humble, and, and uh, they, they, they don't want to be the center of attention necessarily. They're just trying to sort through this wonderful new walk that they have with God. Sadly, however, the American church would prefer the sensational than the quiet change that is wrought in the life of a new believer. My point here is this. We can't cookie-cutter how people respond. We must be very, very careful to recognize what scripture teaches, that when someone is granted new life, there is radical change. Whether it's radical change that is visibly seen, or whether it's radically change that is kind of more subdued and under the surface, it is a radical change. It is new life. In this story, it's clearly seen. When the light shines in the darkness, it reveals man's condition, it provides man with a cure, it produces this radical and eternal change in the heart. Now, I want to bring our thoughts together here um, as we conclude. We will continue on next, next week and just, just really flesh out how this story finishes and all the interaction that takes place with the, the Jews and, and this man and ultimately with Jesus and just a beautiful picture we have of God shining his light into darkness and how he accomplishes this wonderful transition of, of, of blind and sight, not only physically, but also spiritually. But I would like for us this morning, as we bring things here to a close, to consider at least these two thoughts. I have two, two things that, to me, jumped out of this text that I think are worth pausing and thinking about a little bit longer. The first one is this. Beware of popular theology. You say, what do you mean by popular theology? It's the kind of theology that 
you're going to find broadcast, maybe on a Christian radio station, um, pumped by a Christian bookstore, spoken by, by Christians um, who are well-meaning, but really do not have a grasp and understanding of God's word and the statements and, and, the, and the, the things that are communicated ultimately can cause more damage than they can help. Let me give you a couple of examples. And I just, this morning, thought I, I need to throw out a few out there, but remember the whole what would Jesus do thing? Popular theology. You could get a mug with what would Jesus do. You, you might even have a t-shirt with WWJD on it, right? Now, is it important what Jesus would do? Yeah. But you don't always know what Jesus would do. And so it became a slogan by saying, well, I'm going to do such and such. Well, see, Jesus would do this. Well, how do you know Jesus would do this? Are you confident? Are you totally positive and sure that that's what Jesus would do? And quite frankly, is that how we are supposed to approach the word of God? Are we supposed to limit what we do based on the words of Jesus alone and his example alone? What we at least perceive as his example alone? Doesn't Paul have something to say? Doesn't David have something to say? Doesn't God have something to say through the rest of the writers of the Bible? And who ultimately is the author of Scripture? Is it not the Holy Spirit who is working through all that? Now, there's an element of truth there, but you can see how you could fall off in the ditch, and you could actually affirm something that you're doing as being, this is what Jesus would do, but it not be true. Here's another one. The whole God is love movement, right? Is God love? Yes. Is he only love? No, it is one of his attributes. It is not the only one of his attributes. It was the dominant attribute, really? I would, I would venture to say that his holiness is the dominant attribute. Because then his love is holy love. It is pure. You put God as holy on the back of your car and see what kind of responses you get. All right? Beep if you think God is holy, you know. It might be what? Beep, get out of my way, right? But... But see, we, we, this is popular theology. Oh, yeah, that's fine. It's nice. Who wouldn't agree with that? And by the way, who is your God that is love? All right. Remember the prayer of Jabez thing? All right. Now, is there a prayer that Jabez gave? Yes. But the way it was presented and taught, friends, was not what was really revealed in Scripture. It was contorted to say something that it doesn't actually say and, and promised to be something that you could pray and automatically these things would be true for you. And it's like, no, 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 it's popular theology. The whole, we often hear things like forgive and forget. That's what God does. What? God forgets? No, I forget. I forget where my keys are. I forget where I'm going. I went to the kitchen today. Forgot what I was doing there. You know what I'm talking about, right? God doesn't forget. He doesn't like go down a path and all of a sudden, oh, what was I doing with this person? I know I was doing something here. I forgot. No, God doesn't forget. He chooses not to remember, which means he chooses not to hold these things against us. Why? Because he has cast our sin as far as the east is from the west. I'm just giving you some examples. These are popular theology, stuff you hear bounced around. It's like, oh, yeah, it's true, it's true. Is it really true? And that means, friends, that we must take time to truly be in the word and to absorb the word so that the word of God can fashion and shape our thinking so that when these popular theologies crop up, we're going to say, well, that doesn't sound like this is what scripture says. There's elements of truth there. Now, having said all that, I want to tell you about my friend. His name is Ivan Zablatovsky. He's actually one of the pastors that I taught when I was in Russia, developed a good relationship with him. Ilya, do you remember him at all, Ivan? Yvonne told the story of, oh, Renee, you probably remember him too, right? He, he told the story of his youth. He was born with a club foot. He's actually from the Ukraine, from Kiev, Ukraine, and he's actually, they call him a missionary to Russia, although I can't tell the difference, but, he, you know, that's where he's at. He was born with a club foot, and as the story goes, during his younger years, he did have some variety of different surgeries to try and correct it, but that just wasn't able to be accomplished. Um, he went through a lot of, you know, a lot of tests and different things, and uh, in his teen years, um, he, he was brought to faith in Christ, and during, the, the, during that season, he started to interact with a church, and it was a Pentecostal church. 
And that church and the people in that church, well-meaning, desiring to be a help, said, listen, we want to pray for you because we know that, that you have this club foot. We just believe that God can heal your condition. And we know you've gone through all these different struggles and trials, and we want to pray for you. Well-meaning, good intentions. So they gather together in someone's apartment, and they pray for him, and they pray over him, and they're praying for healing, and nothing changes. And they say, Yvonne, we believe that the reason God won't heal you is because you're lacking faith. You just need to have more faith and he will heal you. So come back next week and we'll do this again and just do all you can to make sure that, that you are coming and you're trusting that God will heal you and that your faith will make you whole, okay? So they set up that time and he just, that, that week was just like, okay, I've got to dig deep and you know, try and figure out this faith, and how do you, how do you create more faith, right? I mean, it's like, oh, I've got to have more, I've got to have more, I've got to have more, you know, mm, 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 all right? You pump it. I don't, I don't know what that looks like, but, you know, you just, so he goes in, and they pray over him again, and nothing happens. His foot's still clubbed. Um, and they say, well, okay, maybe you didn't have enough faith, but maybe the problem, we actually believe that the problem is that the reason God won't heal you is because you have some secret sin that you need to confess, so go home and, and search your heart and confess your sin and, and make sure that when you come next time that you're totally cleansed before God and that there's no sin there. And so they set up that time and he went there and he gathered and they prayed over him and they prayed over him and still um, his club foot just remained where it was. And they said, Yvonne, the, the, the reason God won't heal you, we believe, is because you're possessed by a demon. At, at that point, Yvonne says, he says, I got up and I, I walked out. Now, I didn't mention a club foot means that your foot is kind of out, you know, 90 degrees um, where it should be um, and ultimately affects the whole way you walk and it's extremely painful. So this is, this is a real hardship for someone. And, and he's going through this. You know, these people are desiring to help. Good intentions. Think they have biblical truth on their side. And they're walking him through all this, this mess. And Yvonne says, as soon as I heard that, I, I left. And uh, he says, I know they had good intentions, but the, the theology and the teaching and what they were saying just was not what is taught in Scripture. And about a year or so later, he tells, he says, he says I, w I went for a checkup with the doctor, and it was a new doctor, and this doctor said, listen, there's, there's a new procedure I think that we can do with you, and would you be willing to do that? And, and he went through that procedure and was able to get a correction on his foot, and he sees now God's hand at work through that pagan doctor to accomplish this, this corrective surgery in his body. Now, listen, I'm not one here to say that I don't believe that, that God heals. I do. I think it's appropriate to pray for healing. But the kind of theology that was presented to him as the reason why he still had a club foot, friends, that is popular theology. That is not what Scripture teaches at all. And yet there are people that believe this kind of stuff sincerely, genuinely, now, the other thing is this, that although his, his leg is corrected, it isn't perfect, but he's married now, and he has three children, and his youngest son um, has a serious heart condition, completely you know, disconnected to his condition. And how is he going to approach that? Not that way. Beware of good intentions of popular theology that are not rooted in the true teaching of God's word. And friends, if, you're ever, if you ever feel like you're drifting in a certain direction, this is why you have the body of Christ to kind of help you and, and, and to say, listen, I'm not sure how I'm supposed to approach this. I've heard this, I've heard this. And when you're going through difficulties and trials, you can be so desperate, you start to jettison things that you know to be true about God's word and what God teaches because you so desperately want satisfaction. You desperately want resolve. And friends, it's important that we don't embrace something that is not true theology it's damaging. Second thing here is this. Go back, if you would, please, to, um, um, I can't remember what verse it is. I think it's verse four. Um, but he says there, we have work to do. He says his disciples. We have this work that we need to accomplish. There is still yet work to do. Now, he's speaking to his disciples, saying, I am the light of the world, and we have work to do while it is still light, while we still are able to, that's the idea there. But I want you to turn to Matthew chapter five and verses 14 and following. 
Jesus identifies himself as the light of the world, but Matthew teaches us something that is parallel to that. Matthew 5.14 and following says this. Jesus is speaking now. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus, the light of the world, is now gone. And he has placed the responsibility on his followers to continue to be the light in the world until he calls us home, until he comes again, we can say. That is our responsibility. He has graced us with this responsibility to shine this light, to not hide the light. Now, it's absolutely incredible to think that we are carriers of the light. Now, we are not the light in the sense that we are not like Jesus like we are Jesus, but we are reflecting the light in this world. We are the ones who are the light in this world, carrying the gospel, bearing this good news, bringing the opportunity of light into darkness. We are the ones who have the truth of the gospel that can take someone from blindness to the place where they can see. It's a great responsibility for us to have. What are we doing with it? There is an evangelistic edge that we need to see here from this passage. Now friends, do we believe that the gospel brings sight to those who are blind? Do we believe that the gospel causes people who are in darkness to come to the light and to see? Do we believe that to be true? Do we believe that the power is there? I hope so. Maybe we are blind. Maybe we're starting to see. Maybe the light of the gospel is beginning to make sense in you. Maybe you are growing in your understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Jesus has come into our darkness and he is shining the light. This is what we call grace. This is amazing grace. John Newton tells his own story about how God awakened him out of his blindness, found him, and breathed life into him. And it's that song that we know and we love, Amazing Grace, there's the cure, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. There's the condition. I once was lost and now I'm found, was blind, but now I see, there's the change. And it's all because of the light that is at work, shining in the darkness. Lord, help us today to consider these realities, to see in this blind man a picture of our own condition, a picture of our own need, a picture of the wonderful goodness and benefit and results, Lord, of conversion. But it's, Lord, all because of you being the light of the world. Help us, Lord, to consider where we stand before you. I ask, Lord, if there is anyone here that is still walking in, in darkness, that is, that is blind, that, that, that your light would begin to shine, their hearts would be softened, Lord, and they begin to see the beauty of your gospel. And Lord, I ask that we who have come to know you would not just try and live our lives now with our own eyes, but Lord, we would place on our eyes, Lord, the lens of your gospel and your goodness and your purpose, and we would live in such a way, Lord, that we would truly be worshiping you with our lives. So Lord, help us today to celebrate sight, to celebrate life, that only comes through you, we ask in your name. Amen.